the uh, the fear of a normal scan, the fear of a normal surgery is real. That really stems from pervasive dismissal over the patient's journey with pain. Welcome back to another episode of I Care Better, Endometriosis Unplugged. I'm your host, Jan Mueller, and I'm so excited to share the conversation I recently had with Dr. Matthew Leonardi. He is an advanced gynecological surgeon and sonologist, which is an ultrasound specialist, who is really bridging the gap and making some huge advancements in the world of endometriosis in regards to diagnosis. He really reflects the meaning of the biopsychosocial model and true interdisciplinary care and individualized planning. I am very honored to have him as our first physician guest on the podcast because I truly think that he represents what we are trying to do with this podcast in my own practice and in my own little world. I really feel that we share a lot of the same values. If we really want to make advancements in this field, we really need more leaders in in this community like Dr. Leonardi. It took me a couple of days to really process our conversation. And I felt very inspired and like that fire was burning more in why I'm here doing this and why I you know, got into this field, but also why I've been really particular in advocating for endometriosis. And sometimes that can get daunting and you hear a lot of negativity in so many different ways, whether it's just being frustrated that more people don't get it or seeing patients who come in so excited about, you know, I finally have a diagnosis and my doctor is going to put me on Orlissa and just missing the whole piece. And sometimes that can weigh on somebody. And I feel that his attitude and the way he approaches this and kind of blazing through the advancements and not really listening to some of the noise, but really staying positive, positive and motivated is truly inspiring. And so I hope that you all enjoy our conversation. And when we face anything that's a change, that can be very hard. And this goes beyond endometriosis, but I think we are at a time right now where change is happening and we've demanded it. We've demanded it for a long time. We talk a little bit about this on the show and I really appreciated and agree wholeheartedly with his perspective on the changing landscape of endometriosis. And with that, let's get to our conversation. It is very great to have you on the podcast. And actually, you're my my first physician endometriosis expert, which is very exciting. And I think you are such a perfect person to come on the show to kind of introduce this realm of the endo community. So um, I know that we talked a little bit on email and I know you've done a lot of interviews and even other podcasts about your imaging because that is what you've kind of been really known for in the past few years. But that is not all of what you are about. And I would love to highlight the many other things, including an excellent excision surgeon and really a big uh, advocate for pelvic pain and pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy of care and your practice and all of that? Yeah, sure. Why don't I start with a little bit about who I am, where I am, and what I do. So I'm a Canadian. I'm a gynecologic surgeon and sonologist. Sonologist is a word that means ultrasound specialist. It's something that's been around in Europe for a long time, but in North America, it's a relatively newer term. Uh, I did my training at the University of Toronto Medical School and Residency in OBGYN. Uh, I fell in love with ultrasound and I fell in love with gynecology, particularly advanced gynecologic surgery. And I couldn't figure out how to fuse those two concepts. So I went to Australia. I did my fellowship there in both minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and advanced gynecologic ultrasound. Then I came home. I left Sydney and I miss Sydney tremendously, but I'm home here uh, in the Toronto region. I'm in Hamilton at McMaster University at Hamilton Health Sciences. And here I run a one-stop shop gynecology clinic where we assess patients, examine patients, scan patients, 
and do the management of the patients from a multidisciplinary approach, uh, including medications, uh, physical therapy, dietary therapies, a lot of allied healthcare professionals are involved, and I operate. I operate on all complex uh, benign gynecologic problems, but endometriosis for sure makes up about 95% of my patient population. So that's who I am in a nutshell, and I've shed a little bit of light on some of my philosophies in that, but we can get into it a little bit more deep. Yes, you really do everything in it. I think even in in the U.S., that isn't always the case. There's five different people on a multidisciplinary team, right? And they know about it, but they don't always kind of manage the case themselves. So when a patient schedules with you, and I know Canada is a bit different than it is here as well, just healthcare is different. What does that initial appointment look like for a patient? There's been an evolution in what it looks like because of particularly the pandemic and the way that the health system changed involving a bit more virtual care opportunities. But uh, where I've sort of settled now, and that's also subject to change based on feedback from patients and where our health system goes, where we are now is a first visit will usually be preceded by filling out intake forms. So that way we can get a lot of comprehensive information about patients including a number of validated uh, research forms that uh, have a lot of clinical utility, but are created by researchers to study a particular concept, like the endometriosis uh, health profile 30. We use that one amongst several others. Um, One of the other interesting things that happens before a visit for my patients, and this is also being uh, studied by one of my graduate students, is uh, delivery of videos that explain to patients what the appointment is going to look like, who they're going to meet, what might happen at the appointment, as we know that there is a lot of anxiety around gynecology visits in general. And when somebody has a persistent pain problem, there's even more anxiety associated because of historical uh, invalidation and being dismissed. You know, So we have this video that precedes the visit. When the patient finally arrives, Uh, We usually have a a small conversation to sort of summarize why they're there, but then we jump straight into the uh, examination and the uh, ultrasound that we perform ourselves in the clinic. And amazing, yeah, it's. I mean, it it it's something that is so weird for North America, but it's not weird for you know particularly Europe, where the gynecologist holds the probe. Um, Yeah. So, you know, when we're doing the scan, we're actually, we're talking to them, we're asking them questions about their experiences, we're getting more granular information that aligns with what we see, and we can actually acquire a lot more um, detail around the patient's story that way. Plus, we're actually giving the patient in real time feedback as to what are we seeing, where are we seeing it, is this area painful, we're actually interacting. Once the scan is done and the exam is done, we uh, ask the patient to get cleaned up and dressed, and then we join with them in what we call the talk room. Uh, so we move them out of the ultrasound room, and then they join us in another room where we actually sit down and we go through the story a little bit more in detail, and we summarize what we've found on, on scan and on exam, and then we discuss what to do about it. The, the visits are long. The visits are probably around an hour, an hour plus. Uh, most of the patients we see come with a very complex story and uh, many, uh, many physicians they've seen before they see me and my team. So we really want to dig deep into that. Uh, and in that conversation, I do a few very intentional things, one of which is I pause a lot and I say, so far I've said a lot of things. What do you want to know based on what I've said now? Because if I just keep going and going and going, you know, it's it for me in my brain, it's regular. It's everyday yeah. uh, thinking and conversation. So there's not a whole lot of complexity to it. But for patients who are hearing some of this for the first time, I really want to give them an opportunity to like pause. I've said a lot. Now, what yeah. do you want to know? Where, you know, where is your brain at this point in the story? And then usually, you know, we get to the conclusion. Yeah, it takes a while. I, I love that. Yeah, I love that you do that. There was actually a few things that seem may seem minor about what you said, but specifically, 
it makes sense that yes, you would do the ultrasound and then you go into the talk room. And I think that's really important, especially from a trauma informed care, because how many times have you been to the doctor or, or women, people with endometriosis have been to the doctor and they're summing up the findings when you're laying there, it's been probably a painful ultrasound. And then you're trying to get this information in and process. So I think that's really important. It seems minor, but I do feel that's really important for patients. Yeah, thanks for acknowledging that, Jendra. I, I always say to these patients that I see at my clinical practice, I don't really want to talk to you while you're naked and covered in gel. You know, yeah. I want to yes. get you in a comfortable place. Uh, there is a little bit of a difference because I also run an ultrasound clinic where I am primarily acting as an information gatherer for another gynecologist or a, a primary care provider. And in that setting, it's really about acquiring information. There's no talk room dialogue. I still do deliver some information to the patients in real time while I'm scanning, and there's a bit of a chat. So I you yeah. know, I appreciate that that setting is not as conducive to let's sit down and talk now for 30 minutes. But um, right. it's sort of two worlds that I'm trying to run that I'm helping my patients that I'm dedicated to as their primary uh, gynecologic surgeon and then I'm actually able to provide many of the gynecologists in our region and primary care providers so much detailed gynecologic ultrasound information, whether it's endo, fibroids, adeno, other rare things like cesarean sections, scar, isthmuseals. There's a lot of gynecology that is historically very poorly evaluated with imaging that if you have somebody who's trained to do it, can get the answers and share those answers with the patient. Yeah, very helpful. So I know this is not pretty much anywhere in North America, though I've found in San Diego here, actually, there's a doctor that I started working with who did my last surgery, and she has an ultrasound tech. And it, the amount of ultrasounds I've had over the years, I've never had one like this. And it really made me think about what you're doing. I don't know that it's exactly the same, but it was very much looking at the compartments and trying to get behind the cervix into the rectovaginal septum, which she couldn't. That was horrifying, but but she was very nice about it and it gave us information. So in Canada, you have your clinic and you your personal uh, practice, but you also have that that imaging center. Is this more widespread throughout Canada aside from where you're at or not so much yet. No, no, definitely not. Um, really, I am still quite an anomaly uh, in Canada and in North America, though it's, it's quite interesting because as I've come back to Canada and North America and been quite vocal, particularly on social media, a few people have come out of the woodwork as gynecologists, and they've been doing it for longer than I have, but they've been doing it in their, in their center, very quiet, you know, not not kicking and screaming kind of in the same way that, that I am trying to push the envelope forward. You know, for example, um, just last uh, two weekends ago, I was in uh, Maryland. I was in Baltimore for uh, one of the very first advanced gynae ultrasound courses hosted by the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine. And two of my collaborators, doctors uh, Grossman and, and, Hotch and Hotchberg, uh, they were the course directors. They've been gynecologists in the U.S. for years. Yvette, she's in Boston. Lori is in Tampa. They've been doing it for years. They're not surgeons per se. I mean, they are technically trained as gynecologic surgeons, but they don't have that as part of their practice anymore, like I do with endometriosis. But at that course, there were many gynecologists who were attending who were like, yeah, we've been scanning in our offices for a while now. And we're, we're, we're like, we're kind of sonologists. And they, they were like, kind of, shy about saying it or like using the terminology I was like no you got to own it like this is really I think next level where we're going with gynecology and it was really nice to meet them and learn about where they are what they're doing and figure out how we can all work together to push that envelope forward with yeah, gyne imaging in North America yes we we need it so much because well, first, let me ask, this might be a silly question, and I wasn't quite clear, though I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I think it's also probably a question somebody, many other people have too. The The machine is not necessarily different, right? It's just how you're approaching it and you're looking for signs of endometriosis and mobility of organs. 
which just makes a lot of sense, at least to me when, when hearing this. Why couldn't yeah. you see distortion? Um, and why can't you look for other things aside from how thick the endometrium is or, you know, the measurement of the ovaries or, or certain cysts? It, it just makes sense that you could do that. You are correct. Uh, in general, the machine doesn't matter as much as the person holding the probe and the person looking at the pictures or videos in real time. There is, of course, a spectrum of quality in ultrasound machines and in ultrasound probes. So you can't use a machine from 15 years ago and expect it to acquire detailed images that are going to be as reliable as ones that we get, you know, on a machine that was invented two years ago. So quality is important. And that's definitely uh, an, an obstacle because newer equipment is expensive. Ultrasound machines are very expensive. Uh, the probes are expensive. The service contracts you have, the warranty, all that is very expensive. So it is a barrier that we should talk about because as more and more gynecologists want to be able to do scanning, they should be supported in their institutions to do it. The Investment is big, but the, the payout is immense for patients to be able to learn about what's going on. The number of times that I could have encountered advanced endometriosis unexpectedly is astronomical. I can tell you in almost mm -hmm. a completely independent practice now since finishing fellowship, there's been a single case that I've had to abandon because there was a really large nodule on the cecum that I didn't see on transvaginal ultrasound. And I did the, is the right thing in that procedure because I don't have a colorectal surgeon on site. I, the patient wasn't prepped, wasn't consented. We decided the best thing to do here is to stop the surgery and we're going to wake the patient up, inform them and book them in for the right surgery, the, the, the right, with the right team and everything, right? So yeah. how much money have I saved our health system by not abandoning dozens of cases or opening to a laparoscopy to laparotomy conversion, like it's, it's a lot of money saved by the health system. So I think it's worth talking about the money, but also we're talking about how that investment is going to save healthcare dollars. Yeah. It's the bigger picture of what you're investing in and, and also to minimize invasive procedures for patients, you know, these patients often don't want to go undergo the first one or they're scared and to have to then be told, well, it's still in there. And then you have to go again. The patient doesn't want that. The doctor doesn't want that. And so that makes sense. Oh gosh. There's like, there's so many reasons why imaging is where we need to go uh, the cost of course is important from the overall health system, but on a patient level, I can, you know, we can talk about this for five hours about how important that is for <laughs> And just very validating too. They'll tell me as they're preparing for their surgery, I'm really worried they're not going to find anything. And that's a, that's a really scary thought to undergo because you finally feel I, I may have an answer for, to explain this pain I've had for five years, 20 years, 30 years. And to have that unknown looming over your head, even with, you know, the, the best surgeon possible, I don't think that thought ever goes away. And so to have something more definitive, even though it's not, you know, taking it out and sending it to pathology, I think is so comforting for these patients. Yes. The, uh, the fear of a normal scan, the fear of a normal surgery is real. That really stems from pervasive dismissal over the patient's journey with pain. Not everything is endometriosis, though. We have to be very honest about that. Endometriosis is incredibly common. It's usually going to give us a, a sort of a matching picture of disease label and symptoms. But a lot of people who have, for example, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, the symptoms overlap. And some of these things are not identified at imaging or at surgery and not by a gynecologist especially. And so just because something is negative, as in the test doesn't identify the problem, whether that test is imaging or diagnostic laparoscopy, doesn't mean that the, 
process of investigation should stop certainly doesn't mean that we should invalidate the patient's experiences. It's crazy to me what happens in the world of gynecology and in the world of GI, where a normal gynae scan or a normal colonoscopy equals you're discharged because there's nothing found. Uh, it's like, uh, hello, yeah. a normal scan is not uh, meaning the patient is normal. A normal scan just means we haven't identified the source of the problem in these anatomical structures that we've evaluated. Absolutely. And I think just having that sentence in your in your appointment to the patient, it changes the whole dynamic. It changes that fact of dismissal. Like we, you know, it just, it tells us it's not this, or we've ruled something out. It's more information. And I think that that would be really helpful for other physicians to know, because I don't think it comes from a bad place. I think most people really want to help their patients and they feel stuck in what they can help them with. But I think it's okay to say, you know, we, it's just more information. We need to keep digging. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, most endometriosis patients probably wish they didn't have endometriosis because it's a terrible disease. And so there is a moment where it, it, it happens infrequently because a lot of people that are referred to me either have a diagnosis or probably have the disease. But there are a few patients who I have to say to them after a negative laparoscopy, you don't have endometriosis. And that instantaneous despair appears on their face. It's, it's some of the hardest conversations to have, but I have the toolbox to be able to say, this doesn't mean that you're, you're making it up. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't have a problem. And I try to remind people that not having endometriosis is at one, an answer, and two, actually, it's probably really good that you don't have endometriosis because it's terrible and you don't want it. And your pelvis is not destroyed by this terrible disease. So the sadness is there and it's real, but we have to start to like kind of change where the brain is going with that, um, that answer. You know, one of the, the challenges, of course, that we see particularly online is uh, maybe the surgeon was just not right. Maybe it's there and maybe they just haven't seen it. No diagnostic test is perfect, right? No diagnostic test. Nothing in life is perfect. I never say always or never in medicine. And so that yes. you know, flicker, maybe it is still endo, but the surgeon just didn't see it. Is It's possible, but we have to trust in the system to a degree. And going for repeated laparoscopy because the first one and the second one didn't find anything that's not necessarily going to be a good thing to do. In the time that I've been managing patients with endometriosis, I've seen a shift and I don't know that it's completely a positive. Sh it's an interesting shift. And I talked about this uh, with somebody else previously, but it used to be you knew if you were going in to assess endometriosis and the surgeon said, you know, I, I do this with ablation versus I, I excise the lesions that just the term saying I'm an excision specialist sort of came with, with the fact that they do all of it. They do wide excision. They know how to look everywhere. They, they know the different lesion types. And I feel like there's been a shift where now that term, I, I actually rarely see a lot of ablation surgeries, but I see everybody says that they do excision and I've seen the the results of some of those surgeries and you start to kind of pinpoint and you do ask that question, maybe they didn't get it all or they didn't look everywhere. And that's been a more of a challenge for me as a PT because I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what they did or didn't do. I don't know how they assessed it. And we don't have those standardizations. That has become a more difficult issue at least in having conversations and understanding prognosis for patients, which isn't always a bad thing. And I think, and I think you've talked about this too, where it gives time to work on some of these other things that they may have not ever had addressed prior to going into that lapros the laparoscopic surgery. Yeah. It's going to be a forever dilemma for us in health, the concept of quality of the healthcare provider, whether that's a physio, whether that's an imaging specialist, whether it's a surgeon, there will always be a question of, are they good? Did they do the right job? We have that same dilemma with plumbing and landscape. You know, it's, it's, it's a reality of life. 
So, I mean, surgery as the as this tool that's repetitively used for either diagnosis or for for uh, treatment for actual excision is something that we have to take very seriously because one, it's not like uh, an easy thing to do. And two, in somebody who's got a persistent pelvic pain problem, surgery is a further exacerbator of pain. It's another inflammatory process. And obviously we're learning more and more about the pain system. You know, the, the term pain system hypersensitivity is finally coming to the surface. It's the, it's trying to give us more of a, the nervous system is a, is a distinct organ system that's problematic in many endometriosis patients. That system is exacerbated by another surgery and another surgery and another surgery. So, you know, you might think you're trying to fix a problem, but you're actually creating other problems in the process, really confounding and muddying up the, the story here. It's very complex. Yeah. In Canada, you, you when somebody comes in and you see them, what is the time from that initial appointment discussing their ultrasound or imaging findings, having that conversation with them to booking a surgery? And what does that in between look like for that patient? It's a, a sad story for sure uh, at this point. And I think, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future, for so many reasons, healthcare resource limitations, particularly human resources. Now, we've seen a major shift in nursing staff, even anesthesiologists. There are already, obviously, deficits in people who are advanced gynecologic surgeons. So it's not good. Um, but it is different for every single individual. So a patient who has no severe endometriosis with obliteration of the, of the pouch, with no bowel endometriosis, those patients uh, have shorter surgical cases usually an hour or two hours. And so when you're looking at a, in a day, because we get allocated days of the month, those cases are easier to book in because they're smaller. But a full day case that's going to involve a colorectal surgeon, a urologist, sometimes our thoracic surgeon, those are long days and very difficult to book and coordinate. So those patients yeah. actually tend to wait longer, uh, with the exception of uh, the obvious scenarios where there is compression of the ureter or uh, very close to bowel obstruction scenarios, pretty rare for it to get that bad, but it's it, it does happen. And we've definitely had our fair share of these cases mm -hmm. that are those complex cases and they need to be prioritized uh, within a few months in order to save a kidney or prevent a bowel obstruction. Uh, so it's long, probably the average wait time is close to a year. Um, it's really bad. Yeah. Uh, the the interval um, is a point of time that there is an opportunity, I think, because we are learning more uh, in the literature around who might have a good surgical outcome and who might not, who might wake up from surgery and be in the same situation that they were before surgery. And usually there are ways to predict that. Unfortunately, for those of us that are excision specialists or minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons, we tend to be almost end of the line doctors. So by the time patients get to us, usually there are a lot of gastrointestinal issues, genital urinary issues with the bladder, pelvic floor issues, whether that's myofascial pelvic pain or dysfunction in the bowel bladder symptoms, for sure sexual dysfunction is incredibly common. So a lot of these things are actually probably not going to be well addressed through surgery or through medications and require yep. dedicated, very concerted and timely and expensive efforts on the patient's behalf. So what we try and do is we try and start to create an individualized recipe for a patient uh, whereby they're initiating on a pelvic floor physiotherapy journey, which more and more is really becoming not just physical therapy, but biopsychosocial. Uh, implementing so much important uh, sort of pain system restructuring, pain reprocessing therapy appro approaches. We, uh, we do use a lot of medical therapy for transient suppression of symptoms, but mm -hmm. a lot of patients with endometriosis have uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Some of them have abnormal uterine bleeding with fibroids. So we're trying, again, to create that individualized approach where we're using this medication to help with suppression of 
the endometrium so you don't bleed to death every single month and at the same time have terrible yes. period pain due to your endo. So yeah, we're, yeah. we're trying to create what we call a buffet approach, a multimodal approach in the interval of time between assessment and surgery, but that's going to need to continue beyond surgery for sure. And in many of these types of therapies, probably lifelong because of the chronic and inflammatory nature of, of endo. Was there a time that you practiced differently than you do now where you were going straight to surgery, you didn't have that imaging? My eyes were opened to this world while I was a resident. Uh, my eyes are always very widely opened and very. I, I try to be very critical of what I'm doing, what's happening around me, what can be done better. So my eyes opened to this world of advanced gynae ultrasound as a resident. And once my eyes were open to that, I knew there was no going back. I knew there was never going to be a time where I was going to plan a surgery without advanced imaging. So when I was a resident, yes, there were definitely many instances where we encountered scenarios that were uh, far beyond what was anticipated and scenarios where mm -hmm. they were just different than what was anticipated. And a very classic uh, example is the, is the dilemma, is this a fibroid or is this adenomyosis? I saw many patients booked for myomectomy. And when the surgeon got in to try and find the planes of the fibroid, there were no planes because this is adenomyosis. There's no planes. So those examples at the same time as me recognizing the value of imaging really was like, this is a done deal. There's no way I'm ever going to practice gynecologic surgery in North America without advanced imaging training. So I knew I had to leave because I was never going to get it in North America. And, uh, yeah. and I will never operate on somebody that I don't scan or at least look at the pictures in the context of less complex things like an ectopic pregnancy, for example. That's awesome that you started that way because I'm sure that when you don't, and even my eyes had been opened in not really being trained well as a P, as a pelvic PT, though taking classes in pelvic pain. And there are so many times where I look back before I really understood the pain and sexual dysfunction that I was like, oh, this person and this person. And I'm sure so many physicians too that that start out in a, you know, typical OBGYN practice have that same feeling once they go and learn more in depth about this. So that is awesome to know uh, that you kind of went from the beginning. And I know you you talk about this a lot in different interviews, um, how Endo chose you. Mm. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you that it chose you. I should have figured in Canada when I started teaching for public health solutions uh, for our course and met Nellie and she's sitting in through the course for the first one. And in some of the basics, I actually, you know, used your article and talked about the imaging and the differences. And at, at, the, at a break, Nellie said, oh, he's such a trailblazer. And we're, you know, colleagues. And I was really happy to hear that and was very excited because it also told me, knowing not much about you, that you really value pelvic floor physical therapy as a part of care as well. Oh, what the pelvic floor physiotherapists are like my right hand when it comes to managing patients with persistent pelvic pain. It's always involved, almost always involved. It's rare for me to do an exam and a scan and be like, wow, your pelvic floor is like fine rare really rare it's usually involved and it starts so early like i mean it might be radical but i almost think that teenage girls should be taught about their pelvic floor early so that way they understand what it's doing why it's doing what it's doing when it's doing it and how they actually have control over what it's doing or they they can have control over what it's doing instead of just allowing it to decide its own path and that's particularly mm -hmm comes to sexual dysfunction and pain with sex that this is a this is learned i mean yes there are of course endometriosis nodules in the uterosacral ligaments and if those are touched or hit during sex it's going to be painful but a lot of the dyspareunia is related to the muscles not endometriosis nodules per se so yeah i would love to see this 
dialogue starting so much earlier in educating younger women and individuals who are assigned female at birth with female pelvises, you know, that they can actually understand what's happening there. Absolutely. I mean, if you could start it then, we don't know this because it's not part of the care, but how much could you improve their their pain symptoms by just that one thing? I mean, it may not minimize all of the other things in the delay of diagnosis, but yes, pelvic floor dysfunction, it's you consider it, it's either secondary to what's going on. I mean, you can't imagine it not being tight if every month you're curled into the fetal position or there's so much inflammation and pain being generated, of course your pelvic floor muscles are going to tighten and guard. It's just like you touch a hot stove, your arm's going to pull you away automatically. So it's not shocking that the majority of of people with endo have pelvic floor dysfunction. And they don't even, so many people don't even know that they have muscles in their pelvic floor. No, people are, are honestly clueless about what is in this space. I often call it the black box. Patients don't have any idea what's there. And, you know, as the surgeon, we see lots of people who walk in the door and just say, take it all out, take everything out. And I will literally say back to them, so do you want me to cut you just below your ribs and above your legs and we'll just like glue everything back together? Is that is that what you're asking here? Like it's a bit, it's a bit facetious, obviously, but, you know, they don't actually really understand what is there. The other classic example is my right ovary hurts. It's my right ovary again. Mm. It hurts, you know, and I, I say to them, how do you know it's your right ovary? Oh, well, it's because it's in this right area. Well, you know, there's a lot of other things that that are hanging out there that you just are not aware of because it's not been so glaringly shown to you in a public discourse. Everybody knows they have two ovaries, one right, one left. And so mm -hmm. everybody will assume, oh, my right side, it's, oh, it's my right ovary. No, that's not the case. I will do a scan. The right ovary is pristine. There's not even a follicle that's just, you know, developing into a dominant follicle or ovulation there. And I'll say your ovary, I'm, I'm happy to tell you, is perfectly normal in appearance and function and anatomy and mobility. It's not that ovary. And it's, uh, it's challenging because what's, what's happened in people's brains is they've actually created a very true narrative. It's like this thing that now they have to disprove. So yes. I often have to be that person to say, you know, your pain is real. This is a real problem, but it's actually not what you have envisioned for five, 10 years. And now we have to one, identify where, where the true source of that pain is. And we have to undo the wiring in your brain, blaming your ovary, because you've actually created a bit of a, a hate for this thing that is mm -hmm. not actually responsible for what you are experiencing. It's very challenging, both for me as the as the specialist, but obviously way more challenging for the patient to learn that, accept that, and try and figure out how to move beyond it. Our brain wants to have an answer, right? So it's gonna it's gonna come to a conclusion based on the information that we are working with. And so I think sometimes people come in, I don't know why I'm here, my doctor wants me to come, or I have to come before I can get the surgery. Um, many people are kind of excited, but nervous, but when you actually palpate the different muscles and they're like, that's painful. And it's actually referring right there. It's a really good connection for them to say, oh, that's the pain that I thought was my ovary pain. And actually that particular situation happens quite often. Right. And it's, it's useful for us too. And the patient to understand even, even palpating deep in when you feel different muscles and they're like, yeah, that's not really painful. And then you go up a little bit further and you try to move the cervix and they're like, oh, that's my, that's the pain I feel during sex. I'm not on a muscular structure. So that might give us more information coming to PT. We can expect this and this and this to get better, but we also know that it may not take away everything just like surgery is not going to fix everything. So giving patients more information about that is extremely helpful. Yeah. It also sets the, um, the alignment in expectations and reality when patients go into a surgery or any treatment for that matter thinking this is going to fix me i'm going to be better after this uh, and in the context again of persistent pelvic pain whether it's endo related or unrelated that's usually not the case a single therapy is usually going to be insufficient to get the patient to the point that they actually are hoping 
So we really try very hard to set the stage early on, set expectations that this is a chronic problem. It's going to not be an easy problem to fix. There is a lot of hope that we can help you with it, but it's going to require a multidisciplinary approach. You're going to have to do a lot of the work yourself. And we should expect actually that you're not going to be perfect. You know, it's just the reality of the problem. We're not going to be perfect. And when you start to align expectations and reality in all contexts of life, you have a much better opportunity of reaching satisfaction, right? Nobody's ever happy with having an illness, especially when we're talking about 25-year-old women or 30-year-old women. This is not a time where you're supposed to be sick and unwell and disabled. But if we have a true understanding of what's going on and where we can go, then we start to match those expectations in reality, leading to, I can, I can find a way to live with this and be satisfied with my life, you know? I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up. And I think when they just understand that too, it's, it, it's a game changer for them because they know they're trying, they know they're doing the best, but they also don't set themselves up for failure as well. Yes. Yeah. For sure. With the imaging that you're doing now, does everyone get an ultrasound and an MRI? Do you utilize MRI in certain instances? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, for sure. Most people will get uh, only an advanced ultrasound when it comes to evaluating for endometriosis and other pelvic pathology like adenomyosis or fibroids because we're good. We're really good at doing imaging. So, you know, we don't actually need to ask for help that often. That said, I'm very, very comfortable recognizing my limitations and when I need to ask for help. And so I do have a few very trusted radiologists that I'll either ask for an MRI if I need to break something down that's really complex in the pelvis that is just really hard on scan. Usually it's when we're dealing with a really big pathology. So it could be an endometriosis patient who has also big fibroids or a big adenomyotic uterus, big endometriomas. These big structures limit our ability to see the structures behind those structures, so particularly the bowel. And the bowel is, uh, I would say, the most pivotal structure for us to know about as gynecologists before surgery, because we are gynecologists. We're not colorectal surgeons. And though some uh, gyne oncologists uh, have the capacity to do bowel surgery. I would say in the world of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery for endometriosis, uh, it's probably less than a handful of people who are doing their own bowel resections. So it's an incredibly pivotal uh, point for uh, clinical decision making. So I will occasionally ask for an MRI in those situations. And I don't infrequently ask for MRIs in, uh, in scenarios of potential diaphragmatic or chest yeah. endometriosis. Uh, that's a little bit more common um, because obviously I'm never going to see that with a transvaginal probe. But for what it's worth, I have been starting to put the transabdominal probe up in the right upper quadrant to look at the, to look at the liver edges, to look at the diaphragm. I have, and it's not published yet, but as soon as we get surgical confirmation, I've seen diaphragmatic endo on ultrasound once. So I, I mean, I think truthfully, anything is possible in, in the world. So you just have to figure out how to, how to make it happen. Uh, and so, yeah, when I have patients who have a query diaphragmatic endo scenario, I'll try and look. Um, I don't claim to be an expert at looking at the diaphragm, but you got to start somewhere when you're starting something new, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. I, it's so great to find other health practitioners and have to be doctors that just get curious and let's try this and let's see what we find because you never know if you don't try and you might find something that you weren't even expecting. That's like an aha moment. So. And that's happening uh, like across the gyne pathology sphere. We're seeing things like, uh, uh, pelvic venous thromboemboli. These are clots that usually people look for in the leg, a DVT, for example, but we're seeing them in the pelvis. We're seeing them in people who have acute pain in the pelvis. We're seeing pelvic congestion. We're seeing uh, defects in the cesarean section scars. We're seeing all these things that historically nobody saw before. So 
if nobody ever saw them, they were never real problems because, you know, who's going to be able to attribute the symptoms of a pelvic vein thromboembolism to the patient's story? Nobody, if you never see it. So there's so much potential in gynae imaging. There's even really cool potential in looking at, for example, bowel diseases like diverticulosis. When I look at the bowel every day for bowel endometriosis, you start to see other things that you're like, this is not bowel endometriosis, but this is not normal. What am I seeing here? And has anybody ever thought to use the vagina as a, as a conduit to evaluate bowel pathology in women? I don't think many radiologists are super familiar with wielding a transvaginal probe. And certainly sonographers in North America are, you know, they're a little bit uh, restricted in their scope of practice. So, you know, they're, they're also not the ones that are going to be the detective to find something and explore it. So maybe it's going to be the gynecologists who do ultrasound that figure out, hey, what does diverticulosis look like in women when we're doing transvaginal ultrasound? And how can we use that information to enhance the care in the world of GI and colorectal surgery? It's really cool what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. More information to work with and then sort out the usefulness of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So being so innovative and bold, and you really have, as Nellie would say, have been a trailblazer in this. And I don't think that this is necessarily specific to endo, but anytime there's these big aha moments or new advances. I think it rattles people, especially in the endo community where everybody has been pushing for, we need, we need better diagnosis techniques. We need better treatment options, um, you know, to address all of the other things. I think it's natural to have people be a bit hesitant to trust, believe, or be confident and really support and promote that, especially from so much disappointment over the years. So I, I feel like I've seen this more recently. I mean, in the last five years, just the amount of research on various topics of endo have come about. And they're not always, I think, received well from the endo community for various reasons. But especially with the diagnosis, because it's been so ingrained that excision, surgery, and histological pathology is the gold standard. And now we have this new potential to, to give a diagnosis. And it when you think about it, it's amazing, but it there's hesitancy among the community. And, you know, you've had, I'm sure, varying reactions. And how has that been handling some of the, the reactions that aren't so positive? This is uh, one of the most fascinating parts about what I do and the world that I exist in. I think endometriosis, beyond the, the clinical... Uh, interest, there's such a societal implication to this disease that stems from years and years and years of dismissal of women's pain and, you know, the the lack of resources dedicated to gynecologic services across the whole world. North America is really terrible in delivering care to gynecologic diseases that are non-malignant. So a lot of the, let's call it drama in the uh, social media sphere, uh, and drama is a, can be a positive thing or a negative thing, you know, all sides of the spectrum, yeah. um, can stem from people's experiences, whether it's their unique experience or whether it's a collective experience, right? And there is definitely a lot of distrust in the endometriosis community. There has been a lot of gaslighting. I mean, I, I use that word um, delicately because I think Gaslighting implies that people are sometimes intentionally trying to do harm or, um, you know, not actually deliver good care. And maybe there are definitely people who have, have done that in the healthcare sphere. I think a lot of it does come out of ignorance and lack of resources and lack of knowledge around the issues. But anyway, the point is that this distrust that exists uh, has led to issues around believing new things, like you said. and when you are trying to change the game, going from laparoscopy is the only way you can diagnose endometriosis to uh, maybe imaging can diagnose it, you're gonna have people who are gonna be upset about that. I think the, the main reason that some individuals are quite resistant to this idea is because they believe that the medical society is trying to 
take away surgery as a therapeutic tool. They think that pharma is pushing Elagolix and Lupron and Vizan and all these medications to suppress endometriosis for patients, you know, full life from their teenage years until menopause. And there's this like sinister bad guy behind the scenes that's trying to take away surgery from people. And that's definitely not true. Nobody's trying to take away anything from uh, patients uh, from a choice standpoint or from a, um, an option standpoint. I think people are trying to find more options for people because, of course, individualized care is important. But yes. there is a fear that if we diagnose endometriosis with imaging, that patients won't need surgery or won't have surgery, will be diminished, will need to be on long-term medication. The reality is there has been for years and years already this movement away from surgery to use a clinical diagnosis and avoid surgery for diagnosis or therapy. Imaging is not further detrimental. Imaging is actually really advantageous because for all these people who had a clinical diagnosis but actually have really terrible endo-involving bowel or ureters, you're getting that information and these patients are actually getting surgery probably much quicker and hopefully we're going to see with time nobody's going to lose a kidney to endo you know once advanced imaging is fully established nobody's going to lose a kidney to endo anymore and hopefully we're diagnosing it in the early 20s or even adolescence preventing complete anatomical distortion of the pelvis well the other thing that imaging does that's really amazing is it allows the patient to get to the right surgeon so we're not having abandoned or incomplete surgeries anymore so by no means is imaging trying to take away surgery. It's trying to replace it as a better diagnostic test so that way people can get the right care, which in many cases will involve surgery and it should be done by the right surgeon. There's going to be naysayers no matter what, right? It's, it's part of life. Um, social media is a very fascinating place where sometimes a small group can have a very loud voice and appear to be a very large group. And uh, and that can be really hard for some people because they're brought down by it or, you know, people in the community who are patients sometimes feel, oh, this group of people is all doing the same thing and I'm not doing that. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I actually think that sometimes the loud voice um, makes other individuals in the community who are suffering from endo question their approaches to the disease. There's no one, there's no one, you know, size fits all for diagnosis. There's no one size fits all for treatment. I have many patients, I, I bring the consent form into the room because I'm like, for sure, this patient's going to be a good candidate for surgery. We're going to book the surgery. They're going to, uh, it's going to be a great part of their care plan. And they're like, actually, no, like, I really don't want to have surgery for endo. I'm going to do physio. I'm going to do diet therapy. I really want to use a birth control pill because I also want a contraceptive and I want to suppress my hemorrhagic cysts. And you're like, oh, okay, great. You know, you do you. I'm so happy for you to do yeah. you. But when these people hear surgery is the only answer, they're like, oh, maybe like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should have surgery. And you know, that's, that's not right. So I've just tried to be positive and keep pushing forward and not listen to the noise. Um, Cause I feel very passionate about what I'm doing. I feel like I'm on the right track. I think there's been a lot of positive reception to the work that's happening in advancing imaging. Uh, even if it's not as loud, sometimes it's there. So, yeah. you know, I keep going and just try my best. It's so important what you just said. And that is the issue. It's the issue is lack of informed consent. Why can't we have all these tools as long as people understand what they're doing, the purpose, what side effects there are, but that is individualized care. And why, who are we to take that away from somebody if they understand what is what? That is what disheartens me, I think, the most about these very extreme views. And I think you summed it up perfectly. And I know from the community that I'm with that you have a lot of support and we very much appreciate the, the work that you're doing and the advances that you're making because it's so important because not everybody can 
or want surgery or is an option to have surgery. And so we need other tools and they may not be the gold standard, but they may be very beneficial for some people, even if they weren't for others. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've tried to shift the dialogue a little bit from gold standard, you know, gold standard diagnosis, gold standard treatment to copper standard. Copper standard is maybe more appropriate because gold is this like thing that everybody desires and copper is a bit more realistic. And well, I don't know, maybe copper wire is expensive these days, but um, you know, like we shouldn't be rose gold. Yeah. Rose gold. Like my, like my wedding ring is rose gold. Um, You know, we shouldn't have one perfect thing because that doesn't fit. Right. So having, uh, you know, a copper standard diagnosis is maybe going to be better than having a gold standard diagnosis and same for treatment. We don't have hard and fast good evidence that one treatment is far superior than other treatments. In fact, like we've talked about over the course of this dialogue, uh, a medley of treatments is actually probably the the gold standard, the true gold standard, right? Not one therapy. Yep. So I'm really hoping that that, um, that more practical and realistic and truthful approach is going to uh, continue. And I think it will. I think it will. You know, there will always be loud people who oppose and they can continue to exist and have an opinion, right? That's the same for any topic in society. So good on them for having an opinion and voicing it, but let's just keep pushing forward with the work we're doing. And I think that's going to result in really tremendous uh, strides for endometriosis patients, hopefully in the short term, but certainly in the long term. Yes. Well, thank you for all that you do. And we so appreciate it. There are many of us that do. And what you are bringing to the table is so exciting. And I feel like that was a great ending. So um, how can people follow where you're at? There will be information in the show notes, but for those listening, um, what's the best way to follow what you are doing? Where can they find that information? So I'm on most of the socials uh, on Twitter, Matthew Leonardi, Matthew with one T. Um, uh, Instagram is Dr. Matthew Leonardi. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but you know, Facebook is not as exciting. So if you're there, you can follow along, but it's mostly what's posted on Insta. Um, yeah, I mean, those are the two main places, uh, that you can follow along with what's going on in the world of Dr. Matthew Leonardi, the research world, the, the conference circuit world, uh, try to go to as many conferences as possible to learn and to and to teach right um if anybody is ever interested you know in any country i mean probably more locally in the uh northeast uh even canada or the u.s there is an opportunity to have advanced ultrasound uh, at my ultrasound practice uh, which is called sugo specialized ultrasound in gynecology and obstetrics it's uh, maybe a bit weird for uh, americans to come to canada for care because it's usually people doing the opposite. But, you know, if you're up in the Northeast and you're thinking I might want surgery, but I want to be fully prepared for it and there's no advanced imaging near me, then you're, you know, we can definitely facilitate care for Americans regionally uh, to come for an advanced ultrasound and to get that information. Uh, And hopefully with time, we're going to see more people popping up around North America. Another organization to consider following, uh, particularly if you're a healthcare professional, is the Gynae Ultrasound Society of North America. Uh, We have an Insta page as well as a Twitter page. And this is uh, one of the organizations that I co-founded with Yvette Grossman and Lori Hotchberg um, to enhance learning for gynae imaging across our continent, across North America. So that's another place to, to consider following along. Amazing. I will follow along both of those places as well. And I will put everything in the show notes so people can find you. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show and being my first physician uh, guest on the show. This was very exciting and I think huge for everyone listening. So thank you for the honor. Thanks for having me. Thanks to the listeners for listening uh, and, and continuing to fight all together. We can do it. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Endo Unplugged, presented by I Care Better. We hope you found our discussion insightful and empowering. 
Remember, you are not alone in your journey with endometriosis. Together, we can raise awareness, support one another, and drive positive change in the understanding and management of this condition. Tune in weekly to I Care Better Endo Unplugged for more inspiring conversations, expert insights, and practical tips to help you navigate life with endometriosis. If you have any questions, suggestions, or personal stories you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on our website, iCareBetter.com, or social media platforms at iCareBetter. And let's continue this conversation. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Together, we can make a difference for those living with endometriosis. Thank you.